some of you may have just seen that. Pastor's gone for one day, I'm already embarrassing myself, but uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, this is uh, where we will be starting in today's scripture. James chapter 1 and verse 22 says this, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. For if any be hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like on a man unto beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. God, thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would not just talk about your word, but we would do it. God, I pray that we would be doers of the word. Lord, I pray it's all in your precious name, Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in today's culture, we find many people today who like to talk a lot. Um, some of you may know somebody who likes to talk. Uh, and mostly, they, they like to talk about things they like to do or things they are good at, right? Well, what do we know about talk is that talk is cheap. Anybody agree with that? Talk can be cheap, right? But there is authenticity in actions. Right? So we can talk all we want about how great we are at driving, but then when we get behind the wheel and we aren't great at driving, then the talk is cheap. Right? There's authenticity in actions. There is authenticity in actions. The other day, I, uh, well, I was supposed to make fun of Abe today, but he's not in here. He's in the other classroom. But uh, Abe loves to talk about hunting, and Abe is an Abe is active hunter. And uh, I haven't seen him with a deer lately, so I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying that talk is cheap, you know. And I, I'm supposed to—I shouldn't say that about him, but he's not here today. But um, if he was here, I'd still be saying it. Um, but talk is cheap. The other day, I—I I told Pastor Rice that I need to fix my brakes and rotors on my car, and uh, and so I—I uh, I began working on my car, and I told him, "No, I don't—I don't need you. You go study. You do your thing." I just need your tools and I'll be fine. And so I brought my car to his house. I started working on my car. And, uh, well, two broken lug nuts, one stripped rotor screw, one sheared caliper bolt, and one grinded down heat shield later. And about nine hours and 20 minutes later, I got both front tires done. Talk is cheap. I told Pastor Rice, yeah, I know how to do it. I, I'm totally fine. I'll do my brakes and rotors. But when it came to action, I messed up. And uh, that was the longest time I've ever taken on doing brakes and rotors, which, by the way, should only be about an hour max job. And I made it into nine hours. Talk is cheap, but there's authenticity in actions. So when we talk about authenticity, I'm talking about being about it. I've been going through a series on Wednesday nights with the teenage parents. Maybe some of you have heard this series, but... I've been talking about the teenagers to be about what? Well, we talked about that talk is cheap, but there's authenticity in action. So when we talk about the word of God, we ought to be authentic about it. We ought to be authentic about it and not let it be something we just talk about. You see, you're a hearer of the word, but are you a doer of the word? Are you a doer of the word? The authentic part is in the actions. What should we be authentic about? What should we be about? Number one, we should be about 
the Bible. We should be about the Bible. Do you have fears and problems and doubts? The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. The Word of God. Do you desire to get sin out of your life? John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. What does it say? Thy word is truth. Do you wish to see a difference in the world? Do you wish to see lost souls saved? Then we ought to be about God's word. We ought to be in this book more than any other book on this earth. So if you said yes to any of those questions about doubt and fear and seeing the world change and seeing you change, then you ought to be about the word of God. Then we ought to be a church that's passionate about studying and going into the word of God. It ought not to be that on a Sunday you pick up this book and blow off the dust from, that it collected throughout the week because the only time that you've picked it up and read it was when your pastor said, turn to James 1. 22. It ought not to be that, Christian. It ought not to be that. We ought to be about it. We don't come to church just to read the Bible, though, yes, we come to church and we do read the Bible. We come to church because we do read the Bible. We come to church because we believe this book. And so we ought to be about the Bible. By the way, I, I used to have a, a, a misconception about the Word of God. I would go to college and I would hear preachers constantly uh, proclaim this book. And it almost seemed to me, I was like, well, they almost seem more in love with this book than they do their God. And I would start questioning that. And, and, but turn to Psalm 138. I'm sorry, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I love that verse. Now turn to Psalm 138. Psalm 138. Psalm 138. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 138. It says this, I will worship toward thy holy... Why don't we start in verse 1? Psalm 138, 1. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. We know that the word of God is the truth. And for thy truth, for thou has magnified thy word above all thy name. We know in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus Christ is given a name which is above every name, 
And then we know from Psalm 138, verse 2, that God puts his word even above his name. Thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. Folks, we hold a powerful book. You hold a powerful book in your hands. And I used to sit there in college and think, man, they love their Bible more than they love their God. But now, now I realize that's not possible. You can't idolize this book. But you ought to be about this book. You ought to be about the inspired, perfect, preserved word of God. We ought to be authentic about it. We ought not to say that we just read it. We ought to read it. We ought not come to church and act as if we know when we don't. We ought to be about the Bible. What other things that we should be about? Well, we should be about prayer. Do we realize that when we say to our Christians, brothers and sisters, they tell us a hard time or a trial, and you say, oh, I'll pray about it, but then we never do? How many times in our response to someone's hurt or weakness we say, I'll be praying, brother. But then do you ever find yourself actually praying for that matter? Do we realize that that's a lie? Do we realize that's a sin when we say we're going to pray but don't? You see, prayer is a powerful, powerful tool, yet it's the least used tool. I'm working on the teen classroom right now, and there's uh, a lot of stuff going on the wall and lots of screws and nails that have to be used. That job will become a whole lot harder if I never had any power tools. I'll be in there with a hammer and a nail, and things wouldn't go well. Um, as you can tell by how I worked on my car, um, I need special tools to, to complete jobs, right? Well, prayer makes our job a whole lot easier. Yet, we're just like me in there with a hammer and nail, trying to do the work of God without the power of prayer. And we're making our jobs a lot harder on ourselves if we say we pray but don't. We make our jobs harder on ourselves if we say we pray but we don't. We ought to be about prayer. We ought to be about the Bible, and we ought to be about prayer. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 says, And he spake a parable unto them, this is Jesus, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. The Bible also says, and you know these verses, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. The Bible also says in 1 Timothy 2, 8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Philippians 4, verse 6. If you're, if you're in Philippians or you have your finger there, go back to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. 
It is God's will for us, church, to pray. It has been reported that the average Christian spends five minutes a week in prayer. It is reported that the average Christian will spend five minutes, not a day, not a day, a week in prayer. You add that up to about a month, that's only 20 minutes in prayer a month. 20 minutes of prayer a month. And I dare say, what if as a church, we went home and we knelt beside our bed and we set a timer for five minutes to pray what God could do with just that? What if you started praying five minutes a day rather than a week or 20 minutes a month? We ought not be a church who claims to our brothers and sisters that I will pray and will be praying and then don't. We ought to be about prayer. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is a tool that we need to use in our Christian life. Prayer is necessary. There's a man, his name is Jeremiah Lanifer. Lanfear. I want to read you the story of Jeremiah Lanfear, and some of you may know this story. Born in 1809, Jeremiah Lanfear grew up in the rising tensions over slavery within the north and south of the United States. In 1842, by the age of 33, he was converted in a tabernacle built by Charles Finney. Some of you know that name. He radically surrendered to Christ and became an instant evangelist, handing out tracts and sharing the gospel in New York City. He was a merciless business within New York City, one of the first commuting, uh, commuting cities in America. The downtown churches dwindled and few people stayed in the city at night on or over the weekends. The old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in New York hired Jeremiah as a lay evangelist on July 1st, 1857. Jeremiah called on every individual not attending church by sharing the gospel and inviting them back with little results. So here's Jeremiah. He gets hired by a church, and he's evangelist, and he wants to reach every lost soul, and he's He's trying to go out and he's handing tracts to people and trying to invite and he's begging people in New York City. New York City. Think about New York City today. Think about New York City today. He's in New York City handing out gospel tracts, trying to share the gospel with people. And he's getting little, little results. One day, this is a quote by Jeremiah. One day as I was walking along the streets, the idea was suggested to my mind that an hour of prayer from 12 to 1 o'clock would be beneficial to businessmen, who usually in great numbers take that hour for rest and refreshment. The idea was to have singing, prayer, exhortation, rela uh, relation of religious experience, as the case might be, that none should be required to say the whole hour, that all should come and go as their engagements should allow or require, or their inclinations dictate. So Jeremiah had this idea, he said, you know what? I'm going to set aside one hour of my work day. From 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock, I'm going to allow a prayer meeting. On September 23rd, 1857, at noon, the first prayer meeting was called on the third floor of the North 
Dutch Reformed Church. The meeting was announced in a flyer which said that its purpose was to give merchants, mechanics, clerks, strangers, and businessmen generally an opportunity to stop and call on God amid the perplexities incident to their uh, respective avocations. For the first half hour of this first day of prayer meeting, no one showed up. Time went by, and Jeremiah became slightly discouraged. No one had came to his prayer meeting. At 12.30, Jeremiah Lanfears sat alone in a prayer, wondering if he had heard God. Then one came and knelt down. Then another, and another. And by 1 p.m., there were six that had come to pray. Six of them. The next week, there were 20. And the next week, there was 40. Then those who came suggested that they meet weekly. Three weeks later, the stock market crashed, and the panic of 1857 caused some to commit suicide, but others knew where to go to pray. The panic brought hundreds to pray. Soon, men and women filled all three floors of the Dutch as the John Street Methodist Church next door. The Fulton Street meetings, as they came to be called, had a strict order for their hour of prayer. The newspapers, like the Herald and Tribune, picked up the stories and spread like wildfire. The unity among believers was amazing. Pastors wept as they watched, for they were not the leaders, but their job was now to oversee what God had done. By 1858, hundreds were getting baptized. One traveler reported that he had come from Omaha, Nebraska, and encountered prayer meetings continuously for over 2,000 miles on the East Coast. An entire ship crew of 29 came into New York Harbor, all converted sovereignly by the ocean, by the power of God. Over 50,000 a week were getting saved. Over 50,000 a week were getting saved. And in three years, and in three years, because of this prayer meeting, one million out of a population of 28 million, which is 4% of America was saved. One million out of 28 million of the population of America, which is 4%, was saved. 2,000 assembled daily in Cleveland and in St. Louis. They reported that their churches were filled for months at a time, tents were set up for prayer, and newly formed YMCA held revival meetings throughout the country. Secular newspapers reported that 50,000 converts in New York City alone. And one, one paper reported that in New England, in some towns, there could not be one adult that did not profess Christ. New England. New England. There couldn't be one soul that did not profess Christ. It's no wonder that some have called this prayer revival the third great awakening in America. But it didn't end here, for revival prayer meetings were noted to be occurring in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, Europe, South Africa, India, Australia, and the Pacific. Out of this prayer meeting, 
came the ministries of Dwight Moody. Some of you know that name. Great, great man of God. Dwight Moody was started out of these prayer ministries. As well, the movements to end slavery and bring justice to the oppressed. Though it did not prevent the Civil War, many believe that the revivals during the war were inspired by it. And at the 150th anniversary of the revival, a statue of Jeremiah Lanfer was constructed. There he sits with an open Bible, calling people to pray. May we invite people to pray. What could God do with a man who gives up his lunch break to pray for America? And we wonder why, God, why don't we have revival today? Why is America the way it is? God, where, God, why, why, is, why are they doing this? God, they're confused. God, they're, they look at the, how wicked America is, God. Don't you see this, God? Don't you see what's going on, God? And yet we're the ones that pray five minutes a week. And we want prayer in this nation. And we want revival in this nation. Yet we can't pray. Church, we ought to be about prayer. America needs it. We need it. We need revival in this country and in this church and in our homes. Your home ought to be a place of prayer. This church house ought to be a place of prayer. This altar is a place of prayer. And if we were to get on our hands and knees and just maybe decided that five minutes a day, five minutes a day, I will call upon the name of the Lord and pray, what could God do with that? What revival could he start in your heart? What revival could he start in this church? What revival could he start in this nation? That was one man that started that prayer revival. One man decided to give up his lunch break. What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to give up to call upon God? We ought to be about prayer. Let's not just talk about it. Let's be about it. Be about loving people. Moving on, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is known as the love chapter. I can't think of a greater way to love somebody than to pray for them. Look what it says here in verse 1 through 3. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have a gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I be so all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. What is Paul saying? He's saying, you see, I can sound great, and I can preach loud, and I can do wonderful things, and people can see me, and I can look good, but if I do not have love, then it means nothing. You see, Saying I love you means nothing if it doesn't have action. Talk is cheap, but there's authenticity in action. Husbands, we ought not to say I love you to my wife 
and not follow it up with action. We ought not to come and say to our Christian brothers and sisters and say, oh, I love you, but never put it to action. You see, I, you say I love you through actions. You don't say it through words. You say I love you through your actions, not just your words. Though I encourage you, say I love you. I want you to say that. Say it often. And say it so much to the point where you put yourself to the test of whether or not you really do. Because your actions will always speak louder than your words. And here Paul is saying, I could be all these things. I could do all these actions. I could do all these uh, great wonders. And I, I could show you everything. But if I don't have love, then it's nothing. Church, we ought to be a loving church. Not with just our words, but with our actions. Be about loving people. Be about loving people. I gave this illustration to the teenagers. But if this is right, me and God, if this relationship is right, then this relationship will be right. Then this relationship will be right. And if this relationship is not right, then you're going to have a hard time making this relationship right. Because what does God say? If you hate your brother, if you have bitterness towards someone right now, it's like you've murdered them already in your heart. Do you have bitterness towards someone? Is there someone here that you need to forgive? Is there someone here that you are bitter towards? Church, if you think, if you can think of someone that you are bitter towards, I want you to think of this. I want you to think of Jesus hanging on the cross. And as he hung there, he pulled himself up just enough to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Some people have hurt you, and they don't even know they did it. And you're going to have to forgive. Jesus hung on the cross, and he said, Father, with just enough air in his lungs, he pulled himself up upon those nails. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. People, they don't realize they've hurt you. Some people you may be bitter towards, some people you might be hurt by, and they don't even know that they did it to you. We ought to be about loving people and be able to forgive them as well. Do you have bitterness? Do you have hurt in your life? I understand hurt, but do you have bitterness? We ought to be about loving people. It's a sacrificial love that we ought to display. Jesus displayed in all of his actions love. As he hung on the cross, it was the greatest display of love ever shown. His death, burial, and resurrection was all an act of love for us. How could we not show love, the love of Christ, to anyone else? We ought to be about loving people. What it takes is sacrificial love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he says, I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Paul had to die to himself and his own desires and his own selfish lusts in order to love others. If we were to die to self, to, to put away our own desires and our own wants and, and lusts, and we were to give, give ourselves up for someone else, that's love. That is love. 
That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what we can do for others. We ought to be about loving people. Romans 5, verse 6 through 8 says, or verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. There may be some people you don't like. There may be some people that don't deserve it. There may be some people that you don't particularly uh, get along with. But the word of God says, but God commendeth his love toward us while we are yet sinners. You were once the enemy of God. And I understand that we have people that hurt us and use us and, and all these things. But all I'm saying is that Jesus Christ loves you when you were wrong. Jesus Christ loved you when you were the sinner. Jesus Christ loved you when you were the ungodly. And we ought to be about loving others and sharing the love of Christ with others. Lastly, I want to look at be about obedience. Be about obedience. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 10. John chapter 10 and verse 10 says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. You see, it is God's desire and his will for us to be obedient. And Jesus says here, I am come to give life and life more abundantly. And that life more abundantly comes when we are obedient to him. Jesus Christ wants you to have a great life. And I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel. I'm simply saying Christ did come and he came to give us life and life more abundantly. He came to give us life more abundantly. And that only will come if we are obedient to his word. You see, God doesn't just crave control, and he doesn't crave just to make rules and regulations for our lives. No, God gives us boundaries and standards so that we can have a life more abundantly. He gives us these rules to follow, and these, and, but he's not a God that's just over-controlling or, or just a rule maker. No, God loves us, and because of the love of God, he wants us to have a great life in his will. And part of obeying him is staying in his will. I remember there was a time in my life that uh, when I was really young, I was playing around the fireplace and my mom would repeatedly tell me, Preston, don't play around the fireplace. You're, don't. She, that's all she said, actually. She said, just don't play around the fireplace. Don't do it. Don't play around the fireplace. And so what would I do? I'd play around the fireplace because that's what Eight-year-olds do is they do exactly what they're told not to do, um, and that's what I did. So I keep playing around this fireplace over and over and over again, and my mom would consistently tell me, "Preston, don't play around the fireplace. Don't play around the fireplace." And me thinking, "Well, mom's just controlling. Mom's just telling me what to do, and I don't really like that. So I'm going to play around the fireplace." I would do that repeatedly over and over and over again until one day, one day I slipped. And I tripped, and I fell, and I placed my hand upon that fireplace. And I burnt. There's still a scar here today, all up and down my arm. 
there's a massive scar right here. And it reminded me, it reminds me of God. God tells us, I want you to stay away from sin. Don't play with sin. Don't play around sin. And he doesn't do it to control. My mom never did it to control me. She was trying to protect me. She was trying to protect me. And God is trying to protect you. God wants you to have an abundant life, and God is trying to protect you. And when he says, don't mess with this, don't touch that, don't do this, it's not because he's a control freak, it's because he's full of love and wants to protect you. How obedient are we to God's word? If we're really about the Bible, if we're really about prayer, and if we're really about obedience, how, how obedient are we to the word of God in our lives? Jesus wants you to have a good life, and he wants you to do that by giving up your desires and following him. Take up your cross and follow him. That is where the good life begins. Why is it important? It's important that we obey because of the love of God. God wants us to be obedient because everything he tells us to do is to protect us and save us and nurture us. God wants you to have that abundant life. It's much better to give than receive. So, what else? Turn to Genesis chapter 22. We ought to be immediately obedient. Immediately obedient. In Genesis chapter 22, you see the story of Abraham and Isaac. Some of you may know this story, but reading in verse 1, it says in Genesis chapter 22, in verse 1 it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son and thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and give thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee. Now, here's God's command to Abraham. He says, he calls upon Abraham. He says, Abraham, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your only son Isaac, the son that you love. I want you to take him. I want you to take him up. You're going to offer him at the Mount Moriah, and you're going to offer him up as a sacrifice to me. God is telling Abraham, I'm going to take your son. I want you to take your son to this mountain, and I want you to kill him. I want you to offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. He had to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And I want you to think what you would do in this situation. If God came to you and told you the same thing, I would dare say that there might be a little bit of rebuttal. A little bit of, God, why? God, how come? God, why not? God, how, why is this the way it is? God, questioning God. But if you look at verse 3, tell me if you find rebuttal. Verse 3 says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, 
and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Abraham was immediately obedient. Without question, without a question to God, he said, yes, God, I'll go. There was no instant, there was no, there was no fighting God with this one. He was immediately obedient. And you know the story. Abraham gets up to the mountain and he lays Isaac on the altar. And as he's pulling up that knife over his son, and just as about, he's about to bring down that knife upon his chest, God speaks from heaven. And he says, I got what I wanted, Abraham. Stop there. And then there's a ram stuck in the bushes. He says, use that. But God got what he wanted, and what he wanted from Abraham was obedience. He wanted Abraham. He didn't want Isaac. He wanted Abraham. And God got what he wanted when he got Abraham's heart. Church, God wants your heart. God wants your obedience. And I'm not saying that obeying God will be easy all the time. It wasn't easy for Abraham. Though he obeyed, I don't think taking his only son that he loved to, get, to sacrifice him, I don't think that was easy. I don't think that was easy. In fact, I think it was very hard for him. But he did it anyway. And I'm not saying that obeying God will always be easy, because it won't be. But I will promise you that obeying God leads to blessing. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. God here tells Abraham, take your son, offer him up for a sacrifice. He goes up and he says, stop Abraham, I got what I wanted. I have your obedience. And because of your obedience, I'm going to turn your seed into a great nation and bless them. And I will multiply it and bless thee. Obedience leads to blessing. Obedience leads to blessings, so we ought to be about it. We ought to be authentic in our obedience. We ought to be about obedience. Without the obedience of Christ, you would not be saved. Without the obedience of Christ, you would not be saved. And Philippians chapter 2 says he, that he took upon himself the form of servant and humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Obedient unto death. Without the Obedience of Christ, you would not be able to be saved. Obedience leads to blessing. And with this, I, there was a time in college that God had sp spoken to me about obedience. And as I was reading God's word, I was getting convicted about my witness, how I witness the people, how much I do. And I was out door knocking in New Jersey, and they're not very kind of people in New Jersey. Um, but I met this lady at the door, and I, and I was door knocking. I was, I was knocking on doors and handing people tracks, and I said, I want to I invite you to church. And just a couple days before, I told God, I said, God, help me to say yes whenever I feel like saying no. God, whatever it is, whatever you need me to obey, just, just give me the strength to do it. And so I was door knocking and, and handing out tracts, and I came upon this lady, and she's an older lady, and I, she was Catholic. And I stood at the door, and I said, 
Ma'am, I'd like to give you this invite to church. You have a blessed day. And I walked away from that doorstep, and with every single step, I became more and more convicted with the fact that I left her church invite and not an invite to heaven. And as I went, I felt God speaking to me saying, Preston, if you don't turn back now, then she could drop off into hell. And you never told her about me. You just told her about your church. And with every single step, I questioned God. I was not Abraham. I didn't just turn back. I kept walking. I walked nearly a mile away from that house. But it felt like there was a string attached to the doorknob of that house and to my heart. And with every single step, it got tighter and tighter and tighter to the point where I felt like I couldn't even breathe. I remember what I had prayed. I said, God, when I tell you no, make me say yes. And so a mile down the road, I finally, under enough conviction in my heart, I turned around and I started walking back to that house. I thought, man, how stupid is this going to be? I'm going to show up to her door twice and what am I even going to say? I showed up to her door. I knocked on it again and I said, the very first thing, I almost started crying. I told her, ma'am, I am so sorry. I realized that I left you with a church invite and I never even asked you if you knew for sure you're going to heaven. That was wrong of me. That was wrong of me. Friends, she didn't get saved that day, but what if nobody ever went back? What if nobody turned around and told her about the gospel? There would be never a seed planted. And I don't know if she gets saved later down the road, but I know one thing was I tried to obey God. Isaac wasn't offered as a sacrifice in the end. It wasn't the exact intention. The, the end result wasn't exactly what I desired, but the end result was what God desired. Obedience. The end result was what God desired, was our obedience. So in what ways today, this week, this month, have we been disobedient to God? Has it been in our Bible reading? Has it been in our time of prayer? Simple obedience. What, what, caused the, what caused men to fall? One act of disobedience. It wasn't the actual act of eating the fruit. It was the act of disobedience. It caused all of man to fall. And one act of obedience by Lord Jesus Christ can save it. Disobedience is more serious than we think. Disobedience is more serious than we think. Are we obedient to God's word? We started in, the, in James chapter 1. We'll, we'll end there, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, in verse 22, we started here. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Christian, you want to have a blessed life? You want to have a blessed life? Then do the word of God. It's that simple. 
It's all about obedience. When it comes to prayer, the Bible, witnessing, it's all about obedience. And it's all about obeying the word of God. Are you a doer? Are you a doer of the word of God? Or are you just a hearer? Talk is cheap, but there's authenticity in action. What do your actions say about you? What does our actions say about us as a Christian? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day, God. And I thank you that you call us to be obedient. God, and I thank you for the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. God, I pray that we would be authentic people. God, people in action. Lord, we love you. I pray this all in your precious name, Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand on our feet as the piano plays? And Maybe today you, you say in your heart, God, I want to be authentic. God, I want to be someone who, who follows you no matter the cost. Maybe you want to use the altar and just thank God for the obedience of Jesus Christ. Because without it, we could not be saved. we need to become more obedient. Is it in the Bible? A prayer time? Simply loving people? Thank you.